Hi, friends, and welcome to another episode of the End of Sport podcast. Uh, my name is Nathan Coleman-Lamb, and I am joined today by Johanna Mellis. Hi, Johanna. Hi. Hi, everyone. And Derek Silva. Hey, everyone. We're going to talk some baseball today uh, in time for the World Series, but actually our focus is not going to be on you know the World Series itself, uh, believe it or not. We're not, we're not going to take you through... Uh, the nuts and bolts of the the Houston Atlanta. I have no idea who's even playing. Oh, it's Houston Atlanta. <laughs> there you go. Absolutely. Um, we're going to talk minor league baseball today. But before we do that, uh, I think we should address one thing about the teams that are actually playing in the World Series. The thing that's for our purposes is most relevant, uh, and that is the Atlanta baseball team and its determination to persist in its fundamentally racist spectacle uh whether it comes whether we're talking about the name of the team whether we're talking about um the uh logo whether we are talking especially about their favorite custom the uh very notorious truly hateful chop um i mean what do you think i i think it's unsurprising particularly the state that that um, city is in the ownership class of um, the people who own that team. It's it's not dissimilar to the uh, Kansas City team in in the NFL, um, where you just have owners who who don't see don't care um, to even engage in in these broader discussions of the implications of their of their imagery of their um, um, symbolic appropriation and real appropriation of of indigenous cultures um, and their, frankly, their, their sheer racism. I mean, I'm also not surprised. I mean, just kind of given like sort of what we even see, uh, you know, in our corner of social media, just like fans and even like academics and people who, you know, have a critical eye when it comes to um, either their research topics or kind of other uh, racial justice issues who are stating the racist name, right? Not even being willing to just say the Atlanta baseball team, just like we say the Washington football team, or, you know, um, people kind of um, being willing to accept the cover-up attempts um, <laughs> by the Atlanta baseball team and the ownership um, to say, hey, we're, we're talking with this indigenous group and therefore, like, we are making strides, like, this isn't a both sides issue, right? And and it's just kind of um, been not surprising, as Derek said, but just, you know, really disheartening to see people buy into their propaganda and essentially contribute to it, whether it's done intentionally or not. But like, I don't know if you know how to think critically about your own research or kind of other topics, like we absolutely have to be applying it to sports and just the continued willfulness of 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 academics and, and I'm speaking specifically about academics because that just really pisses me off right there their willfulness to kind of not look at sports critically because that's something that they enjoy we enjoy all kinds of things right movies music you know all kinds of cultural avenues and products and we can enjoy them and still critique them to make them better to kind of liberate them for everybody and not contribute to historical discrimination and oppression and yes, it is something that we all grapple with. And I just, I just, I just need to see more of that from, from academics who are also sports fans. Yeah, absolutely. And I mean, there is something like really 
disingenuous about this project to say that the Atlanta team is doing, um, as you pointed out, Johanna, through their PR to say like for the last year and a half, you know, we've been working with indigenous population in order to like, I don't know, in some, I'm sure, incredibly um, marginal way, uh, Mm -hmm. you know, like essentially compensate that community for the theft of their identity. Um, and the branding and appropriation of that identity. And I mean, that's not, that's not the solution. The solution is you cease the practice. You yeah. provide yeah. some form of reparations for the decades of theft that you've already perpetrated. Um, and and the, so the, the move to engage in some kind of tokenistic practice is, is you know what I mean? It's, actually, it's, it's essentially a form of doubling down, <laughs> tripling mm-hmm. down yeah. on the, this theft, right? And, and so, I mean, you know, and for anyone to then justify, you know, their fandom and their investments based on that practice, it's kind of sick. Um, you know, that, that's one aspect of it. And the other aspect of it is like, let's not let the, the sport media complex off the hook here. It's mm-hmm. unreal that they have been televising that spectacle during games. I mean, like one thing you could do to try to at least like minimize the harm that we're talking about here, right? Like I, he, this, like, as opposed to ramming down people's throats, this, um, you know, despicable scene that's taking place in that stadium, right? You could at least cut away to something else. You could go to the booth. You could go to commercials. <laughs> Fucking commercials would be better. Um, and instead, they're just happily displaying it to the world. Uh, a lot of people are sharing kind of complicity, I think, over over this particular scene. And I hope that the World Series, by shining an even brighter spotlight on it, maybe leads to some kind of change. And again, like change in this context means an end to the practice. Yeah, and I, I, we, have a, we have an episode with Jacqueline Keeler on this exact topic, um, it, not in the same context of the Atlanta team, but the Cleveland teams, the Washington football team. Um, and, and I urge our listeners to go check that episode out. Um, it, it's another one of those um, evergreen uh, episodes, as we're seeing now, that, that's in our back catalog. Yeah, sadly, sadly evergreen, because yeah. at this point, there's really no reason for it to be like, we should be done with this yeah. right now, um, but apparent, apparently not. You know, to add context, um, you know, this is in the wake of the last year, not just summer 2020 and Black Lives Matter, but like over the last year, how many grave sites have been uncovered in North America of like, you know, wrongful indigenous and, you know, indigenous deaths of indigenous people, wrongful burials, right? All these things. And yet, and yet all, you know, this persists, right? There hasn't been kind of the same kind of unilateral call for like this, this needs to be like a whole continental reckoning. Um, it just, you know, it's not as if people are unaware of these things. It's not as if people are unaware of how traumatizing these things are. Um, but again, I, I don't know. I just, at this point, I honestly just think it's, it's really willful on a lot of people. It, you know, Nathan, as you said, obviously sports media included. I mean, why, why we are showing racial trauma on camera and praising it and giving it money and it's making lots of money. It's just just the disgustingness of racial capitalism. That's right, Johanna. Like you said it. We literally have simultaneously playing out in, in North American history, on the one hand, the cultural and physical genocide of indigenous people via residential schools, et cetera. And at the exact same moment, the appropriation of this kind of caricatured indigenous culture so that North American capital can benefit and exploit. 
right? I mean, it's like these two hideous practices taking place at the same time, and we can't even do the most minor form of redress, which is ending that latter practice. Like, we can't even do that. And yet we want to talk about reconciliation. It's unreal. So anyway, with that said, um, not to say that this issue is an anyway issue, but um, what we're going to talk about today is uh, working conditions in minor league baseball uh, with uh, minor league baseball advocates, Harry Marino. Um, so we're going to turn it to that interview in just a moment. Uh, but folks, please do follow the podcast at End of Sport Pod on Twitter. Uh, one of these days, we might even get the Instagram going. You can follow it on Instagram as well. Um, and uh, yeah, I mean, please rate and review the pod on Apple Podcasts. Uh, and if you are willing to consider a donation to our Patreon, that is also very much appreciated. Harry Marino is the executive director of Minor League Baseball Advocates, an attorney and former minor leaguer with the Arizona Diamondbacks and Baltimore Orioles. Harry, welcome to the show. Yeah, thanks for having me. I appreciate it. Oh, it's our pleasure. Um, we're, we're really excited to talk to you today. Uh, the kind of plight of minor league players is something that uh, we have talked about on the show before. Uh, we had an interview with uh, Dirk Hayhurst. Uh, and so we're kind of really excited to, to to keep exploring these issues with you, especially since they are really um, extremely topical right now as the work that you've been doing has been um, pushing the envelope in terms of what, um, what minor leaguers can hope for from the major league clubs that kind of govern their working conditions. But before we get into that really recent news, um, I'd love it if you could explain to us what minor league baseball advocates is uh, and how you got involved. Yeah, absolutely. So, our organization is a nonprofit that was formed in early 2020, so early last year, um, basically just to advocate for minor league players. It was a group of you know, former players and current players and some um, labor activists and others who just had seen how minor leaguers have been treated for a long time and saw this massive gap in terms of people you know, advocating on their behalf uh, in a structured way and and wanted to fill that gap. And, you know, I personally was working at a law firm and, and saw the ESPN article about the organization forming. I wasn't a part of, you know, the founding group, but I had always cared about these issues a lot, you know, from my playing days that, that you referenced. And so I called one of the co-founders, Garrett Brochhaus, and said, this is, this is incredible. I think it's long overdue and, and it's terrific that, that you guys have come together to start this. And I'd love to be involved, um, in any way I can. And, you know, one thing led to another and, um, earlier this year, uh, so about April, um, the organization kind of got the funding to, to bring me on as the executive director and since hired a couple other people and, um, and really been able to take on, um, you know, some, some work here in, in the first year of our existence, um, advocating for players. And as you said, pushing the envelope past where it's sort of been pushed before in terms of, um, you know, what, what guys can expect in terms of treatment and just trying to sort of change the culture of the game a little bit. I think for a long time, people have accepted 
that the treatment of minor leaguers is bad, but it just has to be that way. And our organization rejects that premise. Um, and we're trying to see what we can do uh, to fix, you know, to fix it. Yeah. And I think that's, that's an important work and really what we kind of want to focus on in this show, because we are really, we're very much interested in the working conditions of, of athletes, um, collegiate athletes, all the way up to professional athletes. Um, and, before we delve into some some more recent news, um, which there's been plenty as it relates to uh, minor league baseball, I was hoping that you might be able to walk us through some of the challenges experienced by minor league baseball players. What are the living conditions like for minor league players, and why do these conditions currently exist? So the the basic problem here is that minor league players get drafted, um, you know, by a major league club and are immediately signed to a seven year contract. Um, and that contract pays them out at a standard weekly rate of between four and $700 a week. And that, that, uh, salary is only paid during the, what's called the championship playing season, which is basically the regular season and the playoffs. It doesn't include uh, various mandatory periods of work like spring training, uh, fall instructional league, you know, off season training when guys, obviously professional athletes spending many hours every week, honing their craft, um, and required to do so, I should say by contract, not compensated for any of that work. So what we're really looking at on the pay side of things is, you know, between eight and $14,000 a year for what is really a year round, you know, full-time job. I mean, and that's, um, you know, so that's a, that's a huge problem, right? When you're talking about pay that low, there are going to be a ton of secondary consequences. Um, and the margins are going to be really thin in terms of being able to sort of afford anything else. So, you know, that the low pay is, is, is sort of which, which emanates from these, you know, the uniform player contract is really the primary, issue here. Um, you know, the other issues that exist because of it are, you know, there's guys can't afford housing during the season. I'm sure we could talk about, about that and recent developments there. Um, you know, they guys can't afford to spend a lot of money on meals. So you have a lot of you know, cheap meals, fast food, uh, being consumed by players. Um, you know, so those, you know, basic, you know, food and shelter issues, uh, you know, uh, definitely abound. Um, you also have a culture of a fear of speaking up about working conditions or about anything, uh, because of this carrot of making the major leagues that's kind of out there. Right. And the, the facts are, you know, some 90% of minor leaguers will never make the major leagues, but you know, the, the aspiration is there for every player and it's, historically been enough to keep guys quiet, um, about, about what they're being subjected to. Um, you know, over the course of the off season, you have guys who will have to get second and third jobs while trying to train, um, you know, for baseball just to be able to afford rent. And in some cases, you know, use that off season money, uh, for the season, because they're actually in a lot of cases, when you factor in, the cost of short-term housing during the season, guys have, have actually lost money during the actual season. So they're trying to save some money up by doing, you know, some retail job or driving 
you know, for delivery or whatever the case may be in the off season, uh, because, you know, whatever they're making doing that job, $15, $20 an hour is going to be more than what they're making as a minor league baseball player. Um, so, you know, the, the situation is really pretty jarring. Um, and you know, the conditions exist really because baseball owners are allowed to subject every minor leaguer to that uniform player contract, uh, because baseball has an antitrust exemption, which makes that kind of collusion among owners legal. Um, it wouldn't be legal in any other industry, but it's legal in this one. Um, that's why the contract exists. That's why guys get paid so little. And, you know, and, and look, there's all kinds of, we could talk about other issues as well in terms of you know, mental health, physical health, relationships, uh, you know, addiction, all kinds of things that guys struggle with because they're in a very difficult profession and they're making, you know, $10,000 or thereabouts, a little bit less, sometimes a little bit more, sometimes, um, per year. Oh, there's, there's so much in what you're saying here, Harry. Um, so I really appreciate that kind of general framework for the conversation. Uh, I think we, we all have some follow-up questions before we even kind of proceed with um, some of the things we were intending to talk about. One of them that I have, I want to go back to something you said, which even though I kind of, I knew the general architecture of what you were describing, you said that there's no pay during spring training. <laughs> That's absolutely yeah. We're talking about, I mean, this is at least a month, but actually spring training is often more like a month and a half, right? Like if the baseball season starts in April, people are checking into spring training in February often, if I, if I understand correctly. Um, is that right? And is the team like, I mean, if spring training is taking place, let's say in Florida or Arizona, and you know, that's not where you reside year round. That's not where um, your team is based. Like, is the team covering at least the costs associated with coming to spring training? Yeah. So a couple things. So yes, it's crazy. Um, yes, yes, yes to all of it. Right. So yes, it's, it's totally insane. There's no salary paid. They do pay, um, to put you up in the team hotel for spring training generally. Um, and they, you know, provide meals at the complex, um, you know, a couple meals a day, sometimes per diem for an off day. So there's some, you know, some sort of, uh, compensation in that form, but yeah, you're not receiving any salary at all. Um, and yeah, you can be there for, you know, four to six weeks. It's pretty, and it's obviously mandatory. I mean, the myth is, you know, if you had major league baseball's lawyers, you know, they would say, well, it's optional. That's the myth, <laughs> right? But I mean, that's, yeah, you know, right. yeah, of course. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So, I mean, that, that one does not, you know, sort of pass uh, any, you know, the straight face test, it's pretty obvious that you're not going to show up, uh, at, on the last day of spring training and say, okay, I'm ready for my assignment, you know, <laughs> send me to whatever affiliate I know I, it was optional. So I didn't show up to spring training. I mean, it's no. not, <laughs> come on. So anyway, so yeah, no, that's, that's, um, yeah, that's the deal with spring training. It's, it's, it's one of, I mean, housing, spring training pay, you know, generally going many months without, pay when you're under contract and performing work for your employer. I mean, those are the things that have always been kind of completely inexcusable. Um, and, and certainly we're looking to address. Absolutely. And, and just, you know, I'm, I'm thinking about the, I want to go back to the pay range, the pay range that you mentioned, 8,000 to $14,000. I mean, that's what I got paid as a graduate student when I was getting my PhD. Some people get paid much less, some people get much more, but like, I, I don't know how anyone can be expected 
to be an elite athlete and maintain their training and maintain any sense of like healthy diet, healthy sleeping, healthy anything, if they are, if they are forced to be impoverished and take on extra jobs for one. And, you know, one thing I wanted to follow up on is that you mentioned that minor league players fear speaking up because they're hoping to get a major league contract. And, and this really is, is almost parallel or mirrors kind of the conversations that we've had on the show and in some of our writing about how um, college athletes feared speaking up about COVID and like opting out and, uh, and also, of course, you know, advocating for racial justice because they fear, you know, that, that doing so would impact their ability to get drafted into the pros. So could you kind of lay out um, within the minor and major league baseball context sort of what this fear is based on in terms of, you know, how could an athlete's efforts speaking out impact their chances to get a major league contract? Yeah. So I think the parallels are there for sure. And, um, look, I, I think that a lot of this is a cultural thing, right? You are drafted into, um, you know, you're drafted by a major league team, you're sent to a minor league team. And from there, the message that's sent is we have a lot of really good baseball players in this organization. And you are at the bottom of the bottom rung of this ladder, and you got to do basically everything right for the next two, three, four, five years if you want to climb that ladder and make it to the major leagues and get the payoff. And that's, you know, so I think you have to think about it from that perspective. Guys feel that they have to do everything perfectly on the field and off the field just to be able to move up from rookie ball to low A, then from low A to high A. Then from high A to double A, double A to triple A, triple A to the major leagues. It's daunting. And there's a lot of really talented guys around. And so, you know, I think against that backdrop, it's not surprising perhaps that, you know, and, and against that backdrop and in a system where everyone is being like crazily mistreated, right? I mean, I remember when I came into the minor leagues, I was like, jar- just like totally jarred by the pay, I was like, what do you mean? I only, you know, I played a short season three months and got $3,300. And then they were like, yeah, you're not going to get another paycheck for like six months at least. Um, and I remember just being like, this is insane, but everyone else around you is accepting it. And you know that everyone is trying to do the same thing in terms of moving up, you know, that creates a culture of silence and, and, um, you know, that's unfortunately kind of what has prevailed for a long time. Um, is, is this idea that you have to be completely perfect if you want to move up the ranks and, and, and speaking up and being a malcontent is not perceived as part of what, you know, being perfect, uh, looks like. Yeah. And you know, you started actually addressing the the next thing I want to ask you, um, which was about kind of how you yourself experienced this, right. In, In your own time in the minor leagues, because I think like you've done a magnificent job of, um, of laying out, you know, the, 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 the general experiences, the ways in which this exploitation works on a structural level. But I think sometimes like it really hits home for people when you kind of hear these, these personal stories, like what it really feels like, right? It's one thing to say, this is what my wage was. Um, these are what my working conditions were, et cetera. But like, it's, it's really, it's another thing um, to, to hear like the, the subjective dynamics, right? Like what it was like for you as a person who is struggling to achieve this, um, 
almost like Sisyphusian goal of becoming a major league player uh, in a context where, like, as you pointed out, almost no one will actually achieve that goal just based on a pure numbers game. But not just that, but also baseball is a sport for those who are less familiar with it. Baseball is a sport people always like say, it's like, you know, you fail all the time in baseball, right? But that's actually really taxing. Like if you're a hitter, a great hitter fails more than two thirds of the time. That's not easy. When, when your livelihood is at stake, right? When your future is at stake, when you're living in horrific work, living conditions, um, to then at the same time be coping like with that rate of failure and that rate of pressure. I mean, I, I'm imagining what that's like, but I, I, would, I would love to just hear you maybe talk a little bit about how you felt and experienced all that. Yeah, no, I, I think that what you're hitting on is really important, which is this idea of, you know, the compounding stresses of on-field performance and off-field, um, you know, just off-field issues. And, you know, when I, when I played in the minor leagues, you know, I, look, I was an undrafted free agent out of a D3 school, right? I went to Williams College, not a lot of professional baseball players coming out of there. And, and you know, I was, you know, I was not a prospect. I was a guy who could, I was a left-handed pitcher. I could get guys out. You know, I had good stats in the minor leagues. I'd always succeeded, but I, you know, was not sort of somebody who was, you know, 6'6", throwing 100 miles an hour, who was always destined to be a professional baseball player. So my personal experience of it was, you know, a little bit different than some guys, because for me, I, you know, I was probably one of the less likely guys to make it. And I knew, and I was pretty aware of that. I also was fortunate to have a college degree and sort of a plan to go to law school in the background. So I, you know, it's also very, very rare. So for me, you know, the, some of the stresses that other guys who, you know, playing baseball was absolutely the, you know, this incredible God-given talent that they had, um, you know, they didn't necessarily have an education, you know, educational background to fall back on, you know, that I think they probably experienced more stress than I did personally. But I can tell you that, you know, it's, it's very difficult to, even for me, it was very difficult to sort of figure out, well, how am I going to make ends meet here? I mean, I had to go and ask my parents to help, you know, support me, I had to still work, you know, I was working, you know, two, three jobs in the off season. And I, at the same time was studying for the LSAT because I was like, this is not a viable career, even though I was, you know, performing well on the field. And so you're constantly distracted by, you know, everything else that's going on around, um, everything else that's going on around, you know, the on-field performance, because it's not something where you sort of get drafted and can say, okay, now I can devote all my time and energy to this in a very balanced and, um, you know, sane way. It's like, I need to figure out how the heck am I going to make ends meet and how am I going to, you know, really, you know, envision a life for myself here. Um, that makes sense because it just, it doesn't make sense on, you know, five, $10,000 a year. And, and I, I, you know, I experienced that personally and I saw a lot of guys around me who didn't have, you know, they were prospects. Their shot of making it still wasn't terrific. It was better than mine. And they didn't, you know, they didn't necessarily have the secondary plants in place that I did. And they had a lot of stress hanging on sort of every pitch and every outing 
you know, because this idea of like, oh my God, if I have a few bad starts, you know, am I going to get cut? I mean, that's kind of always hanging out there. It's very, very stressful, uh, dynamic and, um, and it's not, you know, it's, it's not healthy. And I think it's, it's part of what has made it difficult for players to speak out. So for so long is that, you know, you kind of become inured to this idea that you're not really worth, um, that much, that there's always somebody you're very replaceable. And, um, and I think that dynamic is very harmful to players. And part of what we're trying to do is say, no, you're an exceptionally talented athlete. And there's a supply of players here. There's a demand to watch, you know, to watch you play. And, and the economics make sense for you to make a lot more money than this. And, and don't buy into the narrative. You're being told that, that, you know, you're not worth anything because you are. And um, I think guys are happy to hear that and, and are starting to see that. Yeah, and I, I I think that's really important. And you you've talked a lot about how um, the organizations kind of structure the opportunities and structure, uh, in particular, future opportunities for um, for athletes in really um, fundamental and foundational ways. And one of the the, the recent stories that came out um, uh, in in um, in minor league baseball news was that reportedly teams have agreed to provide housing for all players and in the past in in our view it's it's been housing has been used as one of those tools in which um, minor league athletes are sort of coerced into um, into being docile and 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 being disciplined and being able to uh, handle all of these. Uh, uh, all of these forms of control. One of the questions that we had is, uh, can you tell us or walk us through your understanding of how this this um, housing for all player system will will sort of look, and how this is like in in our view, or at least um, in in the mass media, it's a seemingly really momentous change. How that change sort of came about? Yeah. So at first, I would say that. You know, on the details, we still need to wait and hear a formal announcement from yeah. the league. Um, you know, I think that we we haven't heard it. We've heard some details. I think, you know, that it's going to include, you know, I, I think it's going to include um, all minor leaguers that are not represented by the major league union. So all guys who are not on the 40 man roster, whether it's going to be stipends or furnished housing. I'm not certain. I think, you know, in order to opine on that, I really have to see what the formal announcement is and what the formal policy is. Um, what I can say is it seems that the league understands that this is a problem and understands that this, you know, housing in season at a location, you know, where a team sends a player should be on the employer and not on the player. And I think they're now acknowledging that they're now taking that on. And I think that that's, um, you know, a really significant, significant victory for players because, you know, to get to the second part of your question, this did not happen out of sort of, you know, benevolence. This was not something that, you know, that, that MLB said, oh, we're going to do this to help out players. And it did not happen because teams and the league figured out for the first time this year that this was a problem. Everybody inside the game has known about the six guys in a two bedroom apartment and guys 
you know, having to sleep in cars at times and having to, to really do crazy things when it comes to housing like that, that was known. So I think that it's very important to say that that is, was a known fact. Um, the thing that forced change this year was that players spoke up about it in a systematic and unified way all season long, you know, and that took the form of a lot of guys coming to us and, you know, us putting stuff out on social media that got a lot of attention. It came in the form of, you know, articles written in the press and in the media, uh, both at the team level and at the national level about particular housing situations and about sort of like a housing crisis. And as a result, the league, you know, bent to the pressure of the players speaking out. And I think that um, is unprecedented in uh, you know, on the minor league side of things and is really, really important for that reason. I think it's a really significant victory on a really important issue for minor league players. I mean, when we started out, as I said, it started April 1st and we started talking to players, they all pretty much without exception said, obviously the low pay is a huge issue and, you know, housing in season housing, it's, it's hard to find. It's costly. It's a huge stressor. Like if we can get a win on housing and get that change, that would make a huge difference in our lives. And we were just hearing that so consistently that we said, look, let's come together around this. It makes absolutely no sense, you know, as is. And from a, from a human standpoint, from a player performance standpoint, obviously guys are not going to perform well when they're sleeping on a mattress, uh, air mattress on the ground, you know, next to three other guys. Um, so, you know, I bet if we if we all come together around this, we can force some change and to see it happen, you know, within the course of one season, um, I think is a testament to the power of the collective and to what minor leaguers really can accomplish if they stick together. Yeah, uh, no, no question. And, and you have addressed a couple of things I was wondering about with respect to this, but I, I still want to kind of hit on them just to talk them through a little bit more. So it's very clear from what you're saying that um, you prioritized housing precisely because um, the players that you were speaking with were prioritizing that as an issue. And, and that, that sounds like exactly the way, you know, we'd want any organization like yours to function. You're not a union technically, but like, what should a union be doing? Well, it should be <laughs> listening to its members, right? The union is its members and you should be bargaining for and demanding the things that your members want and need. And, and it really sounds like that's exactly what you're doing here, which is why you prioritize housing, uh, you know, which is again, which is great. And I, and I entirely support, um, I guess so. A couple of my questions that emerge out of this, and this is not this is not to say this in a combative way, because I, I, it sounds like from what you're saying that you're thinking about this in a very similar sense, but more just in terms of trying to tease out what some challenges might still be on the housing front. Um, and you're probably thinking about them, as I said, in the same way. Um, the first thing I'm wondering is, you know, you know, obviously not all housing is created equal. Do you have any sense at this point, and you may not, because again, this is like Major League Baseball made this announcement. You're just pushing for better housing. Um, it's not your responsibility to immediately have the better housing. But do you have a sense of what the teams are, what the, what the housing that's going to be offered might look like? Um, my, my understanding is that Houston was already offering this kind of housing for minor leaguers this year. 
I'm not sure what that housing, I'm going to be curious to know what the housing in Houston looks like, if that's the kind of model that you folks are interested in. Do we think that it's going to be a standardized kind of sense of housing or, or is this a situation where every organization is going to offer something different, which may in turn introduce other kinds of disparities, right? Like whereas one organization might be giving the kind of conditions you need, another one is just using the cover of the fact that, quote unquote, everyone is providing housing to offer really substandard conditions. So I think that it's a really important point that you're raising, right? Which is just because this is a huge win and because there's been a statement that the league on the league's part that their teams are going to take this on doesn't mean that this is the end of housing as an issue for minor leaguers. Far from it. I mean, I expect housing to continue to be an issue because we're going to have to provide oversight to make sure that this is implemented in a way that actually works for players. And, you know, for, you know, in terms of the question of exactly what is it going to look like, you know, I don't know the answer to that. Uh, all, all I can say is, you know, with Houston, they, uh, my understanding is they had, you know, basically, you know, one bedroom, one bath apartments, right? Like pretty simple stuff, but just their own room with their own bathroom and, uh, you know, nothing glamorous, but, but, you know, certainly their own space and their own bed and their own, uh, you know, shower and that guys were very, very happy with that, you know, that that worked out well and, and, um, and that was provided for them. I think that, you know, cause you have, obviously the cost is huge when you're only making, you know, between eight and $14,000 a year, but also the practical piece of finding housing is a, is a problem in a system where you get assigned to a minor league team, you know, three days before, uh, the end of spring training, if that, and then have to go and, you know, find housing immediately. And then you can get moved up and get down and get moved down to a different level. You know, the, the, the logistical piece of housing has always been a real problem just as much as the financial piece. So I think, um, you know, we certainly would, would like to see, obviously not only it be covered, but it be procured for the players as well. You know, um, I think that players having to figure out how to find housing on very short notice, you know, is is very, very difficult. And that team needs to be um, doing that. And I expect that they will. Uh, but in terms of the details, you know, we're going to have to see. And, and look, I'm sure that some teams will use this as an opportunity to provide really good accommodations to their players and and try to you know, get a performance benefit out of that. I'm sure there'll be other teams that'll try to cut costs more. And I think this is where our organization, as I said, housing is still very much going to be an issue because we're going to have to provide oversight to those teams that want to cut corners to the extent they do um, to do what we did this year in terms of outing them for doing so, calling them out and, and holding them accountable um, to do better. Yeah, no, I love how you put that. And, and also like, that, that you've really underlined the logistical challenges for players, because I think that's the kind of thing that those on the outside may not immediately see, right? Like in this particular occupational environment, that is a major part of the experience people have, right? And if you don't address that, then you're still putting people in a, a really difficult position. The, the other question I had, um, and I mean, I'm torn on it because you, you've made a very compelling case for why this is a, like a, a, a good solution to the very specific problem that you have. But, you know, nagging at the back of my mind still is this feeling that there is a kind of coercion that can come potentially with 
tying housing to employment, right? Because there's this sense in which if you lose your employment, then you also lose your housing. And that puts players in a kind of compromised position, any workers who are in that position, in a compromised position, because um, then suddenly you basically, you, there's too much risk, too much threat to speaking out, right? Or to challenging or resisting in any way, shape or form things you don't like in the workplace, because not only do you lose in that moment your job, which is obviously a crisis for people in general, but like, then you also can potentially lose your home at the same time. Is that something you're at all concerned about? So I think, um, I, I understand the concern, right? And I think that, um, I think that it's, it's a valid one in, in some way, but I, I'll tell you why it doesn't really concern me too much in this particular industry is the way we see this is really that the minor league season is more of an extended work trip than anything else, right? It's six months long, but you're basic. I mean, you're spending two weeks at quote unquote home, then two weeks on a road trip, then two weeks back home, two weeks on a road trip. So you're not losing your home. Like if, if you get cut, right. For speaking out, I, I think I understand what you're saying, but you can correct me if I don't, then, you know, you're not losing your, like these guys call home somewhere where they live. Uh -huh, in the I see. Season, I see. Yeah. Right. Well, you see what I'm saying? And so you're not, if, if, if you could lose your job and you know, your off season home, because you know, the team was paying for that and setting you up there and furnishing it and all of that. I think that, you know, you could be worried about a sufficient amount of control that could border on, you know, more coercive than in a world in which housing was not covered. But because in this particular industry, I, I mean, the way I see it and the way I think, you know, almost all the players I speak to see it is their home is where they live in the off season, you know, with their family, you know, or on their own. Um, and they show up to spring training and they're kind of assigned from to one place or another from there. You're kind of just going wherever you need to go for work. You're going from Florida or Arizona to your quote unquote home uh, team to, you know, the road games, back to home games, up to the next level on the road and back. So you're kind of just on this crazy six month journey playing baseball, wherever your, your major league team tells you to go. And our view is wherever they tell you to go, part of what they need to do is put you up there. And that's, I think the way that we see it. So I, I guess, because I don't really see it as, you know, their, their full-time home. I'm not sure that uh, I'm particularly worried about it being more um, coercive or, or them having too much control because of this development. Yeah, that, that's really helpful. Thank you. That clarifies things. Absolutely. And just kind of like two comments that I have. Um, and then I want to ask specifically about how the pandemic um, impacted working and living conditions for minor league athletes. Um, so one is that when you were explaining your own experience and sort of having to um, you know, rely on your parent, kind of have your parents help you out in addition to getting additional jobs. And I think that's, I think that's really important because it shows how the, and how the fact that the, the structure totally impoverishes athletes, right. That makes it so that any athlete who's like working class, right. Or, and, or maybe needs to kind of support family members and, or has like, you know, family health issues or whatever, right. It sort of precludes them or makes it very, you know, very, very difficult for them to be able to, to, to kind of continue to be an athlete. Right. So it's very much 
you know, reinforcing existing inequities and, and, and working against any kind of inclusion efforts that the league may ostensibly be trying to work towards, which I found really disheartening. Um, then the other thing is that we're, we're getting, you know, when you're sort of explaining how there are these instances where we have numerous men living in very small apartments. I mean, this is something that we've seen on our show again and again and again, and that I've seen in my, my own research, which is the experiences of athletes in the 1950s and 60s who similarly are extremely impoverished and are living like you know, 12, 13 men to like a two or three bedroom apartment. And here we are in 2020 and we have multiple men living in, you know, small, small room apartments, sleeping on air mattresses, as you said. So, you know, from the 1950s to 2021, we aren't really seeing that much movement, which is really depressing and really shows how much further we need to go. Um, and, you know, and then to go back to this pandemic question, you know, I'm wondering um, to what extent or how did the pandemic impact the landscape of minor league baseball and what influence has it had on the working conditions of players? So, yeah, I mean, I have to answer the question on the pandemic. I do want to just sort of echo what you're saying about the troubling uh, tendency of the current system to reinforce, uh, you know, existing inequities, because I think that's, it's a huge problem. Um, and I think players who do not have some, you, you can't like, let's just be real about the way the real world works. You cannot live off $8,000 right. a year. I mean, it, it goes without saying, but like, let's just say yeah. it, right. You can't. So somebody has to support you, mm-hmm. <laughs> like, you know, whether that's a friend, a spouse, a parent, you know, a sibling, like somebody else has to support you through that time. And not everyone has that luxury, mm-hmm. plain and simple. Right. And so the people who do not have that luxury have to leave the game. And that happens all the time. I mean, I think maybe that's something that people on the outside don't see, but there are talented future major league players who quit playing in the minor leagues because they can't make it work financially. It happens every year in every organization. And it often happens when players have not always, but often, you know, when players have families and children of their own, not only do they not have, you know, outside sports, they have to support other people, you know, that becomes particularly impossible to do. So just, you know, I think that's a really important part of this conversation. Yeah, and if, I, if you um, don't mind, I just, just to, to follow ahead. up, cause I, I think, I think you're highlighting really crucial dynamics here. And of course, right, this, the, the, the fact that the structure impoverishes athletes totally works against this whole like capitalist rhetoric of, you know, like athletes should be grateful and they should work hard. Right. And they should, you know, they'll, and, and if they do those things, right, that they'll be paid what they deserve. And it automatically puts athletes in these bind where they're not being paid enough and, you know, they're working as hard as they can and still not getting paid enough. And so it probably leaves many feeling like they failed or kind of, you know, that it's their fault when it's really just the system is impoverishing them, right? It isn't their fault at all, as you noted, right? It's sort of the circumstances that the, the structure is putting them in. Um, and just, I, I can't imagine kind of like mentally what kind of turmoil that potentially creates or reinforces for athletes. Yeah, I think that it's a great point. And I think that it's something that, you know, guys don't want to speak about for a whole host of reasons, which probably go, you know, beyond sort of the purview of this. But I think it's important to just say that, you know, nobody is feeling bad generally, right. For professional athletes. So guys feel like they, you know, they're weak or there's something wrong with them that they're struggling in this way. But as you say, like 
that they're not. I mean, this is a system that is meant to beat you down mentally, to make you feel inadequate, to make you feel insufficient, and to make you feel that, you know, you have to do everything right, you know, just to move to move up. Um, and when you can't make ends meet to support a family or, you know, wife or children or whatever the case may be, you know, guys feel badly about themselves. And and I've talked to many guys about the way that you get drafted and you feel great. Like you're you're on cloud nine, right? You are a professional baseball player, your dream has come true. You've been identified as, you know, one of the best baseball players in the world. And then as you move through the minor leagues, you're only getting better at baseball. You're not getting worse spending all day, every day playing baseball, but you feel worse and worse about yourself because you internalize this, you know, this sort of sense that you're not worthy, uh, and that you, you know, now you've kind of started over and you have to move up the rungs and you're not getting paid anything for what you um, for the, for the labor that you're doing. And it really messes with guys' heads. And I think a part of what our organization is doing is saying, look, we see you, you, your labor is valuable. Your talent does matter. Your hard work does matter. You are exceptional at what you do. And we need to reframe this conversation so that you can recoup that value. And that's not only important from an economic standpoint, but it's also just from a human standpoint, like these, these people, um, should not be subjected to this. Like, it's just not right. I've seen the damage it can do to guys and it, it's just not a, you know, anyway, it's not right. So I think that's part of, part of what we're trying to accomplish. Yeah, and um, just, just to follow on that, cause I know I, we do want you to come back yeah. to the pandemic and it's a really, yes, it's really important. But, um, you know, one thing that I, I focus on actually in my own research with, um, former athletes, uh, is the, um, not just the physical, which is a very important part of this, but also the emotional, right? And psychological consequences of all of the tensions you're talking about. This is exactly what Dirk Hayhurst was telling us about, actually, the fact that um, people on the outside don't understand at all what athletes are going through, right? And this is, this is true across professional sports. There's a way in which athletes become framed as these sort of like avatars for people's own emotional fulfillment. And there's this, right, this kind of dehumanization that happens there. You don't realize that like you're at someone's workplace as you're screaming at them, right? And it may just be something as simple as like, you know, your child is sick or something and like you're not, you're not fully in the moment in the way that you might be because you're a human being at work. That's one thing. But like there's clearly what you're, you've been getting at and Dirk was getting at is there's also this other layer where people really have no idea about minor league baseball particularly and how challenging all of these very specific dynamics are. Um, and that also, that it sounds to me like, and this is a really important part, that there isn't dialogue within as well. Like that was the without dynamic, but there's also this within dynamic where people aren't talking to each other about it because there's this kind of masculinity piece that's at play where everyone has to be, because you're in this environment, and Johanna was getting at this too, you're in this environment where essentially like you're pulling yourself up by your bootstraps, right? Like this, this myth of the American dream is that this, like, this really kind of pure context for it, where if you work hard enough and it's a meritocracy, you're going to get everything that you need. Um, when in fact, that's obviously not true for all these reasons. Like it's, in that case, it's a perfect, in that sense, it's a perfect allegory for capitalism in general, right? We have this myth that hard work and excellence leads to prosperity. And in reality, there are all these structural barriers that make that prosperity exceptionally difficult for most people to, you know, to achieve and, and to buy into. But, you know, one thing that I'm thinking about in the context of all this, because we can't have dialogue, because people don't have really like healthy outlets for coping with these exceptionally unkind conditions. 
Is there a way in which to deal with the emotional consequences like drug use becomes part of the equation as well, right? In other words, like people essentially have to self-medicate themselves because they don't have other avenues for dealing with what they're going through? Yeah, look, I, I mean, certainly there are... Um, I think that it's really important. This idea of just just two things there. One, the myth is is I couldn't agree more. Right, this myth that this is a meritocracy is obviously completely fabricated, but is a big part of how the system has, um, you know, been perpetuated for so long. Um, you know, and and on the on the question of you know substance use and abuse, I don't have sort of statistics, but you know, anecdotally, I, I can say that. You know, it's not surprising, um, you know, the way that it works, which is guys are under enormous stress um, and have all kinds of emotional problems uh, that are brought up by this very unfair system that, as you said, dehumanizes them. And one of the ways that a lot of guys do cope is through, you know, drug and alcohol use um, and abuse. And I think that's something that is, you know, you know, I, I, I don't know. And wouldn't or sort of opine on how it, uh, you know, compares to the population writ large. Um, but you know, I do think that it's part and parcel of a larger mental health crisis that um, you know has been has been sort of referred to by certain people in the media. And I think again, without statistics and without wanting to overstate anything, I think these are serious issues. I mean, these mental health issues. Uh, in the minor leagues, substance abuse issues in the minor leagues. Um, these are real issues. And in some ways, it's not that hard to imagine how this has happened, right? When you have a system that treats human beings like widgets, right? As uh, not as something other than human beings, there's going to be a human cost to that. Like you need to treat human beings like humans. And we're not seeing that uh, we haven't seen that for a long time at the minor league level, and that's part of what we are trying to change. Yeah, we're just curious to get um, your take on on how did the pandemic kind of affect the landscape of minor league baseball, and what impact has has COVID nineteen had on the working conditions? Which I imagine it's it's probably vast. Yeah. So the look, the pandemic affected minor league baseball has affected everything in our society. And I think, you know, it did so in a couple ways. One is it left guys without a season, right? No, no season of minor league baseball, um, which I think was important for a couple of reasons. One is it made players sort of understand how powerless they were over their own situation because of the way that they were communicated with during sort of the process of the cancellation of the season where guys basically just told them, go home and just keep throwing, you know, against a wall or whatever. And, and maybe we'll, maybe we'll come, you back, come call you back sometime. I think during that period, guys really were like, wow, we are not being looped into this. We, you know, we don't have any sort of say in what's happening. This is all very much happening to us, and we're not even really a part of any kind of a conversation. And so I think that was eye-opening. I also think that, and this is probably true for people outside of baseball as well, a significant um, event like the pandemic that changes sort of the habits and, and routines that you have can be a moment where people reevaluate things, right, and question things that they – otherwise maybe didn't have time to or reason to question before. And I think we've seen that with 
minor league baseball players. I think guys came back this season feeling much more skeptical about the way that they're treated much more, you know, sort of, I think a lot of guys paused and thought, wow, like, is this really a way to live my life to make Mm $8,000 a year playing baseball? Like, is this what I should be doing? And I think a lot of guys, you know, have, have been a little more been thinking a little more critically about the industry and about, is it fair how I fit into this? And I think the answer when those questions are asked is no, it's not fair. And so, you know, I think that it, in some ways, the energy we've seen this season from players um, in terms of wanting to speak out and wanting to be treated better is something that I certainly attribute in part to the pandemic and to sort of the break from business as usual that it represented for minor league players and to the lack of a say and lack of representation and lack of a voice that minor leaguers had throughout that entire process. And, and I should say, I can't you know, sort of mention the pandemic without saying, you know, we also saw kind of quietly because of the pandemic, all these teams get cut, right? So, you know, overnight, essentially, you know, a thousand minor leaguers lost mm-hmm. their job when 42 mm-hmm. minor league teams were cut. And, you know, for a lot, that meant the end of a lot of careers very abruptly at a very difficult time. And, and so, you know, I think that's also something that, um, that absolutely, you know, needs to be mentioned in any conversation about, you know, COVID and yeah, what baseball. you're talking about, to be honest, it sounds it's like disaster capitalism is what I'm, I'm hearing here. And we've seen it in so many sectors, right? Like we have the panda. It seems to me, and maybe you will disagree with me, you know, you have, I'm sure, a better understanding of the political economy of minor league, of, of baseball generally. Um, but like, uh, it, it seems to me that we have a situation where this incredibly lucrative industry has decided to contract this, you know, this site of labor um, because it's going to save them a little bit of costs, right? Costing all these people, these jobs, folks are not organized in that sector. Um, You know, and we're seeing that everywhere across the economy. And that's one reason why we're in, we're having this moment that's been called strike Tober right now, right? Like what did, what did you say? You said people have come back from the pandemic and they have a different attitude to their work now, right? Like their, their attitude is we can see very yes. clearly what has been done to us because we have like, you know, we've had this distance, we've had these different kinds of experiences and we're not willing to take it anymore. And we're seeing a wave of strikes across this country right in this very moment. Do you kind of feel like what you're doing is connected to that? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, look, I think when you look back at the labor history of baseball, you know, it has reflected and been in line with and and shaped in some cases the labor movement, you know, in other industries in America more generally. And I think we're seeing the same thing here, which is, you know, we're seeing a lot of energy in the labor movement across industries right now um, and undeniably connected to COVID. Um, in many ways. And I think that we're seeing the same thing in baseball. And so, yeah, I, I absolutely see the connections. And and I think that um, that's something that historically has been has been true as well. So, I, I, yeah, I, I, the answer, the short answer is, is yes. And I think, you know, that goes without saying, but that's a, a very good thing from our perspective. Yeah, and one of the questions that we kind of constantly come back to on this show um, is, is sort of what is the role of solidarity across sports leagues? And I think perhaps more 
importantly, from major professional leagues to the more precarious minor leagues or the so-called amateur leagues. Um, for example, we've talked a lot about how the NBA and NFL players need to show solidarity with campus athletic workers who are mobilizing in, uh, for better working conditions in college sport. So my question for you is, what is the role of major league players in the struggle, in the struggle for better minor league working conditions? Uh, the, the, MLB, the MLBPA does not include minor league players, which in itself seems like a, a huge barrier to solidarity. Um, it's nice to see some support of big leaguers, but why, why isn't there more? Why aren't we seeing more solidarity from, from the major leagues? Yeah. So a couple things there. I mean, I think on the last, take the last part first, I think the, the reason there hasn't been more solidarity is pretty simply that this is the system that has existed for a long time. And it's something that everyone has just accepted for a long time. So I think that, you know, that's baseball is a very conservative game, right. In terms of tradition and in terms of, you know, these are the way things uh, have always been, so it's the way they'll always be. That's oh, you know, that's been a large part of baseball. And I think, you know, it's it's really that simple. But I think, you know, I would say that we are really seeing major league players start to speak up more for minor league players now than mm -hmm. ever before. I mean, we had, um, you know, during the canceled season, a lot of major leaguers, you know, stepped up and and you saw them donating their own paycheck to minor leaguers when the major league teams were not. Um, we're not doing that. Uh, we're not kind of taking care of their minor league guys. The players reached into their own pockets to do so. I think that was kind of a first signal that major league players were, were going to pay attention and we're going to start to think about this issue. Um, and you know, I've, I've seen, you know, on September 18th, so pretty close to the end of the minor league season, you know, we had sort of the first player demonstration at the Brooklyn Cyclones game where there were a number of players on both the Mets and Phillies um, minor league teams that wore our, you know, hashtag fairball wristbands uh, during the game. And, you know, in the two weeks, you know, that were left in the major league season after that, we saw some big name major league players pretty organically just say that they wanted to show support and we were happy to provide them with a wristband and they wore it, you know, guys like Andrew McCutcheon and Trey Mancini and Bo Bichette, Jose Ramirez, um, and others. I mean, these are some big name guys. Um, obviously Chris Taylor wore it throughout the playoffs, had a great postseason, And, um, so we've seen some major leaguers that have been willing to put their name on it here in the last, you know, just over the last month. Um, and again, that was in a more organic way. And so I, I'm optimistic about where major league players, um, are going in terms of this issue. I think that there is, um, you know, an entrenched attitude that has been, you know, sort of the way major leaguers have seen it for a long time, but I really believe that that's changing. And I think that that will go a long way towards, procuring better working conditions for minor leaguers because on some level, you know, major league players have the leverage here in the industry that the minor leaguers don't. And not only can they therefore shape the industry, but they can also send a powerful signal to minor leaguers that they have their backs and that this is a fight um, that can actually 
you know, win, um, win, you know, certain, certain victories for them that they might not otherwise think are possible. So I, I think that the major league players are going to play a big role in this. And I'm optimistic about, um, about okay. where it's well, I'm, I'm encouraged to hear that because, you know, that kind of question of solidarity, um, you know, it can at times be a real challenge in the context of athletic work, partly I think because of the fundamentally competitive nature, right. Of this enterprise where you're like simultaneously, um, your, your job is to defeat and dominate, but at the same time, you're also coworkers and you're in a collaborative enterprise to produce a sort of commodity spectacle together. You might be your workers working in the same workplace. There's a lot of tensions there, right. To negotiate. Um, and, and one of the tensions that we were talking about earlier in this conversation is the fact that this sort of American dream ethos, right? This idea that um, because it's a meritocracy, everybody is sort of in it for themselves. They're trying to work their way up. And part of that also going back to the masculinity piece is not being able to concede any kind of vulnerability or weakness, right? Because that, that in that sense exposes the fact that you may not be cut out for being tough enough to be that dominant figure in the context of sport, even a sport like baseball that isn't predicated on like literal physical domination. I think that ethos is still there. And, and the reason I'm saying this now be, is because I'm curious then, like one aspect of it, what Derek was getting at and you were getting in your answer, Harry, is, is you know, solidarity between the uh, major league and minor league players, which is, I think, I, I agree with both of you completely. It's a, it's a crucial piece in this. Um, and we need to see more of these high profile athletes standing behind um, their coworkers. The World Series is a perfect opportunity. I would love to see. I mean, to me, like there, there's no barrier. I don't know why every single player on every single team isn't wearing one of those wristbands. They have nothing to lose and there's everything to gain for, for their colleagues in the minor leagues. So that, that to me is like, you know, a no brainer. And the fact that we're not there um, tells me something, right? About that there's like maybe some kind of ideological barrier to that happening. But the, the thing I'm wondering about here is, do you also face that barrier in even organizing minor league players? Um, because, you know, you're not a union, I understand, but like you're working, again, you're working kind of like a union and the more minor leaguers you have involved with the organization, the stronger that it is. And, and a challenge that emerges in the context of college sport, which we're thinking about so much of the time, right, is the fact that people are there for a short period of time, right? In college, you're there for what, maybe four years max. Um, in baseball, I guess it would be three years specifically. Um, and so, you know, three or four years, but they have to be there for three years once they sign up if they want to get into the majors uh, to be drafted. Um, and so one, one reason why college athletes don't necessarily want to organize is you have that brief period of time to showcase your abilities, right? To get that professional contract. And so to, to spend that time organizing, to spend that time kind of fighting against the people who control your working conditions, who control your playing time, that can feel counterproductive. And it does seem like that's the same thing in the minor leagues, right? Like you're on these seven-year contracts, you have a certain period of time where you're indentured to the organization. And the question is, you know, how are you going to spend that time? Are you going to spend it organizing and risking your opportunity? Or are you going to spend it building solidarity for yourself and, and solidarity and power for yourself, but also for those who come after you? And that is a hard choice to make. Are you finding that to be a barrier to what you're doing? Yeah, look, so I think that there are any number of challenges um, in terms of organizing minor leaguers, which is why, you know, historically, when you talk to people, they would say, oh, it'll never happen. You know, players will never have, there'll never be a minor league union. They'll never be organized. It's too, you know, there's too much turnover year to year. They're too powerless um, within the industry. You know, the position is just too precarious. And, you know, I, I, there's certainly obstacles. I think, you know, the, um, 
the, the ones you've laid out, you know, are certainly, uh, you know, among them. I think that the thing that, um, that we're seeing is the conditions are really so bad for these guys that there is energy there to try to make it better, notwithstanding some of those barriers. And I think, you know, that's, um, that's something that candidly, like 10 years ago when I was playing in the minor leagues, I didn't see that energy. I think, you know, whether it's COVID, whether it's, um, the sort of, you know, athlete empowerment we're seeing across different sports, um, you know, whether it's just larger cultural forces in play, uh, you know, changing dynamics with the younger, you know, younger generation. I, I really don't know exactly what all the answers are, but I can say that players are far less willing to simply accept the, the standard treatment that minor leaguers have accepted for, um, for decades than, you know, than ever before. I think that, that, that there is a ton of energy there. And so to me, you know, one thing is there is, you know, just in terms of solidarity between minor leaguers and major leaguers, we have this myth that the minor leaguer and the major leaguer are a different player, right? But the way it works is you get drafted and you move up through the levels and then you end up at uh, the major leagues and you're the same player, right? And so to me, like one thing that we've seen on the league side is this idea of one baseball and consolidation. And part of what, you know, we're certainly talking to players about and hearing from players is that, you know, there's, there should be some kind of a conceptual framework on our side. That's very on the player side. That's similar, which is from the moment you're drafted until, you know, the end of your major league career, whether that your career lasts, you know, one minor league season or, you know, some minor league seasons and then 15 major league seasons, you know, you should be, you you know, you're kind of similarly situated vis-a-vis your employer and, and sort of, um, chipping away at that division that management has created between minor league and major league players, which to be candid is in large part, you know, the fact that there's a union representing major league, you know, players on the 40 man roster and therefore they've made a lot more money and minor leaguers haven't had that. Um, I think that's important. And I think that will help, you know, from a solidarity perspective. Um, and I think that it's something that, you know, if we can, if we can change the framework a little bit about how people think about this, industry, um, I think that, that we'll see some more progress as well. Cause the energy from minor league players is definitely there. So on that note, what's next for minor league baseball advocates? I know that the MLB is touting higher salaries and those are nowhere near high enough, obviously. So how do you move the sticks on that issue? And I think you alluded perhaps just a moment to this is unionization on the horizon for minor league baseball players? So uh, a couple of things. One is, you know, look, our organization is, you know, a nonprofit. Mm-hmm. We're not, um, you know, so we're really just advocating for players, educating people about how players are actually treated and providing them a vehicle to speak out, um, you know, about their working conditions. Now, obviously we've done that in an organized way and in a unified way. And for that reason, you know, I think the idea that you know, we are doing some of the things that a union does is, is not, is not yeah. wrong. I think that that's, you know, I think that that's a, that's a fair assessment. Um, you know, obviously there are things players can do to organize themselves and, and be collectively that will succeed. We saw it with housing. And I think if we see, 
players coalesce in the same way around low seasonal pay, I expect that you know we could see a similar shift. I think that the average fan uh, of the you know New York Mets won't want to read 58 stories next season about the fact that guys are making you know eight thousand dollars a year. And this is what that really means for their life. And so if that's the approach we have to take to force change there, I I wouldn't bet against minor leaguers who are willing to speak out around um, an issue in a unified way. You know, in terms of a union, I think, you know, we've our organization has always said from the start that uh, we think that's one of the, you know, that's the best permanent solution for minor leaguers. It's worked for, you know, certainly worked for major league players. And for other professional athletes and, you know, it's time tested across industries, you know, having a collective voice and being able to bargain with your, um, you know, with with your employer over working conditions is the best path forward. And so we you know, certainly have never hid the ball on that, that, that that's kind of what we um, that's what we see as the best long term solution. Um, and, you know, hope I'm, I'm personally hopeful that one day we'll be able to get to that point, you know, at this point from an organizational perspective, we're just going to continue to do more of the same, which is bringing players together to educate the public about the way that they're really being treated and to push for, um, to push for changes uh, using uh, whatever mechanisms we have at our disposal. Well, wow, Harry, thank you so, so much for just really like obviously taking the time to speak for us and all your efforts to kind of help push uh, for more advocacy and sort of more rights and economic stability housing for uh, minor league baseball players. Um, I don't know about the guys, but I I feel like you really helped kind of clarify a lot of things, a lot of things that we're seeing in many different sports. And so it's kind of interesting seeing athletes in different different sports kind of coming to similar realizations about how, you know, these structures really do seek to impoverish athletes and really to, to kind of dehumanize them as much as possible to prevent them from advocating for more, right? And to kind of prevent them from, from demanding, whether it's housing, payment, more stability, et cetera. Um, and also obviously the kind of connections between, um, like am- how college amateurism sort of props up professional sport in terms of de- teaching athletes to kind of devalue themselves and kind of expect less and not ask for more. Um, and so thank you so much and, and really all the solidarity to you and the others that are really pushing for better conditions for minor league b- baseball players. So thank you so much for joining us today. Yeah, thank you. I appreciate all of you for having me on and um, for drawing attention to the issue. And and, and uh, really, you know, we'll hope to uh, keep pushing for more change here as we uh, as we move forward. <laughs>